September 16th, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan announced a new policy on how the U.S. should think about leadership and key technologies. He said, on export controls, we have to revisit the longstanding premise of maintaining relative advantages over competitors in certain key technologies. We previously maintained a sliding scale approach that said we need to stay only a couple of generations ahead. This is not the strategic environment we are in today. Given the foundational nature of certain technologies, such as advanced logic and memory chips, we must maintain as large of a lead as possible. This past uh, Friday, October 7th, Commerce's BIS announced a 100-plus page set of new regulations impacting uh, export controls around semiconductors from a number of dimensions. To help us understand what all of these new regulations mean, we have on today Kevin Wolf partner at Aiken Gums International Trade Group, former Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration, and a senior fellow at CSET. He uh, represents a number of the companies which um, are going to be, uh, should I say represent? It's not represent, right? He, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm counsel to uh, companies that are affected by these new export control rules, yes. Uh, he is not a registered lobbyist and doesn't represent Chinese firms. Kevin, welcome to Trend Talk. Happy to be here. So where were you when you saw Jake Sullivan's speech? <laughs> That's actually a good way of putting it because it is a, a transformational document in terms of the, the thinking and the philosophy of what national security means in the context of, of export controls. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that uh, during the Cold War, uh, the rules governing the movement of commodities, technology, software, and, and sometimes the services um, uh, between the East and the West, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and the Eastern Bloc, et cetera, um, had uh, a larger strategic element to them. And, and what changed with the end of the Cold War and the rise of the current uh, multilateral regime system with Wassenaar arrangement being created in 1996 um, was a focus of export controls on the inherent nature of, of commodity software and technology that were somewhat related, identifiably related to the development, production, or use of either weapons of mass destruction or their means of delivery um, or, or conventional weapons. Um, and after 9-11, some anti-terrorism aspects were added in, but uh, they were not strategic controls. They were overtly not focused on specific countries um, and uh, they were governed largely by and the laws of the allies are governed almost exclusively by the structure of lists of specific items that are identified for one of those WMD or conventional weapons applications. And, um, and that's how national security was defined. And then uh, what, what changed, frankly, is, is, is China's uh, technology acquisition policies, uh, uh, acquiring uh, commercial technologies in order to help modernize its military, um, uh, the use of a state policy of uh, st achieving strategic economic dominance in, in key uh, sectors uh, for the economy that are also uh, critical for uh, the modernization of a military, uh, the use of, of commercial items to commit uh, human rights abuses, and, and um, uh, the whole concept of what national security means in the context of regulating items relative to that post-Cold War regime-based system started to change. And um, in uh, 2000, we, we started thinking, to be blind a little bit about this, when uh, I was in the Commerce Department, but we didn't act, to be fair. Uh, we uh, were still within the scope of the traditional structure of 
um, of the four regime system as governing the types of items. We absolutely had embargoes on military items and items of any type modified for military or satellite applications. We had human rights controls. We had uh, aggressive licensing policies for traditionally dual-use items. Um, um, and so that's not really the issue. It's not like we didn't do anything. What really was changed was in the debate uh, leading up to what became the Export Control Reform Act and um, the uh, Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act is that there needs to be a fundamentally new way of thinking about what national security means with respect to China's yeah, strategic economic ambitions and, and uh, civil military fusion policies and human rights abuses, et cetera. And so with, uh, with the Export Control Reform Act, which passed in um, August of 2018, there was a mandate uh, to the agencies uh, to start identifying uh, the types of, of emerging and foundational technologies that didn't fit within the traditional concept of what export control should be for, not within the traditional concept of national security. Um, but Congress didn't define it. I'm still about ready to answer your question. Uh, Congress didn't define it, didn't find what national security meant outside the traditional uh, context. The Trump administration issued different rules asking questions made uh, some specific edits uh, through the multilateral system, uh, about 32 or so changes um, that were within this broader concept of emerging and foundational, but never really articulated a, a clear vision of what national security uh, with respect to China meant when you get outside the traditional objectives. And, and the Biden administration hadn't either until the Jake Sullivan speech. And, and, and he did exactly what you just laid out that we must think about uh, force-multiplying technologies, the high-end compute capabilities, the advanced node semiconductor capabilities, uh, the, uh, you know, the quantum and the AI applications, uh, not as in the traditional sense of export controls, because each one of those items has inherent characteristics that are identifiable with respect to uh, weapons of mass destruction or weapons in the, in the classical sense of export controls. Uh, but we need to think, as he said quite clearly several times, um, about controls on a strategic basis, because those are force multipliers for other items of great significance um, uh, for purposes of uh, 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 a competitive economy and um, uh, advancing and, and modernizing a military. And this rule that published on Friday is the 100-plus page, highly technical, extremely complicated rule imposing uh, licensing obligations on commodity software technology and in a really novel way that I'll describe in a bit, uh, activities of U.S. persons in order to implement that broader vision. So I, th I know your question was kind of funny, but it was actually right on because um, it really is, I believe, a transformational and a fundamental shift in the definition of national security with respect to the regulation and the purpose for regulating uh, the movement of otherwise commercial uh, commodities, software, technology, and services by U.S. persons. Yeah, so I was I was present at the creation in the room, <laughs> actually, and um, it did really perk my ears up. But it's when you see a strategy like that, you are then waiting on pins and needles for you know how it's going to manifest, right? And I think this is um, a really fascinating document that was released on Friday, walking you through exactly what they mean by uh, force multiplier technologies and um, trying to make the lead as um, as large and as sustainable as policy as possible. So with that as an intro, Kevin, what's in these regs? What's in these regs? Um, the, the full answer honestly would take hours to work through. It is um, extraordinarily detailed, but the short answer is 
any of the inputs, any of the tools, any of the technology or the software, whether U.S. or foreign-made, um, uh, and any services in support of basically all the things that in Jake Sullivan's speech are now subject uh, to some form of regulation. And by regulation, I mean um, a license permission from the U.S. government is required, and then there are policies for when that permission will be granted. In some cases, like if it's with respect to uh, a company that's owned by one of the allied countries, uh, companies, um, uh, or presumptively denied, if not. Uh, and a license, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what a license is. A license is a chance for the government to see what's being exported. Uh, just because it's approved doesn't mean it's a failure. It actually means it's the, literally the definition of compliance. And, and some things the government has decided it will grant and some things uh, it will not. So anyway... Um, so it, uh, it articulates at the beginning of the rule, a much more focused, uh, and much more, uh, lengthy description of the general principles that were laid out in the, um, uh, Jake Sullivan speech. And so the policy objective is, uh, and the, the problem to be solved, and that's really what I was referring to in defining what national security means. How do you define the problem to be solved? Uh, says that China has mobilized vast resources to support its defense modernization and its civil military fusion strategy by targeting uh, and affecting advanced computing and, and advanced node semiconductor manufacturing. And, and, and so, so I'm just going to go through the main categories of things that are in the rule, uh, each one of which has you know, several hours and multiple detail behind it in terms of describing what does, doesn't get caught. Do you want Actually, me to just look before that? we do that, let's talk about the sort of like strategic thesis behind this, which is that... Um, 14 nanometer and below is scary from a U.S. national security perspective. Um, the document makes the argument that this is because you can, you know, design missiles better and have awesome hypersonics that you couldn't if you weren't making these chips or importing these chips. Um, thoughts? Um, whereas I'm sure another reading of this is, uh, you know, America just wants to be on the cutting technological edge for a sort of long-term uh, economic edge. What is the goal as um, uh, as BIS is defining it? And do you think it is smart or justified? Yeah. Uh, well, so between um, uh, imposing controls on items that are critical to making advanced military items and weapons of mass destruction, et cetera, and a goal to have as um, a purely economic objective, uh, there's nothing in this rule that indicates that the latter is the motivation. I mean, people may think it, people may infer it, um, but uh, the overt articulation is that over time, uh, uh, you need uh, advanced computing capabilities in order to modernize your military to make more advanced weapons, given the nature of their smaller, better, faster, uh, more efficient. And and what's what's slightly different than what the traditional type of controls has been is the relationship between the specific item and the policy concern. So the classical view of export controls uh, up until now is that there was much more of an identifiable relationship between the weapon of mass destruction and the military item and the actual item going into it. Is it radiation hardened? Does it operate at a particular capability? Does it have a frequency that's used in, in military radar? And, and with a few exceptions, that's the primary way of thinking. This basically goes back several layers before in the food chain and said, in order to get to the point for all sorts of other applications to make modern military items, um, uh, you need to have an ecosystem, an economy 
that has um, advanced computing capabilities, uh, the, um, uh, the, the advanced AI cap uh, capabilities that are described, uh, supercomputers, and then for those things to function, you need advanced node semiconductors. And for advanced node semiconductors to exist, you need certain types of production equipment and software. And for those things to be put together, you need services of, of, of U.S. persons behind it. So um, that's really the thinking. It's just moving the line several layers back in the food chain to identify the items that are um, advanced compute capabilities because of their, as Jake Sullivan said, um, uh, it enabling capabilities for other applications later. So, so I guess then that moving the line back then inevitably will catch um, commercial as well as, you know, radiation hardened stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's no doubt that the overwhelming number of applications for everything described in this rule uh, are are overwhelmingly commercial. And and um, I, you know, I want to emphasize the controls that have been in place for a very long time already regulate and in fact completely embargo for China any type of item, whether it's sophisticated or simple, that's in any way modified, changed, altered, intended for, designed for a military application, a satellite application, a missile application. And, and so, um, you know, the controls have been focused on items that have some modification for them for one of those applications. These are items that don't have, by definition, any particular modifications for military or missile or nuclear or any of the other applications. And so it, they are, by definition, overtly, inherently commercial in their main application. But what Jake Sullivan said and what the Commerce Department said is that those capabilities are so foundational to to creating the military and other items of concern, even if these items themselves have not been modified for military applications. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, an exascale computer can run meteorology and climate models. It can also run uh, ballistic tests, right? And I guess Absolutely. the argument is that you can't, you know, there's nothing... There's nothing you, if you sell these chips, you don't know where they're going to be going. And because of the national security implications of, um, of these, of, of leading node technology, um, particularly, you know, when you're looking at these super specialized AI chips that can be daisying together to make exascale compute, then you end up, uh, not being able to play the game that, uh, export controls classically played of trying to uh, only restrict the stuff that was obviously um, uh, aimed at military applications. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I mean, dual-use export controls are exactly that dual-use. They have commercial and military applications. That's the foundation of the, and the essence of the Commerce Department system. And there are lots of things that are more or less direct uh, to military applications that are widely, or if not, you know, majority used in commercial applications that have been on the, uh, on the books for, for, for years. Uh, I, and so th in that sense, this is not different than that. I'm just saying that it's vastly bigger and it's, you know, several layers before uh, in the food chain for what traditionally has been thought of as the type of item that warrants controls. That is where there's a more identifiable specific relationship to a particular military or other related application. What do you think are the good and bad arguments for going this route? Um, so the... Uh, I, I do think it's directly responsive to this need for a new way of thinking about national security with respect to the the specific and unique and, uh, and significant threats that China presents by virtue of the policies that I rattled off earlier. 
And so in my, it's my personal view. I think it's direct and responsive um, uh, to those issues. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite, uh, quite good. It's quite complex. <laughs> um, and it took a lot of people by surprise uh, in terms of its uh, in, in scope and the fact that the effective date was immediate for Friday. There was no opportunity for uh, companies to, um, you know, think about what the implications would be or unintended consequences or impact on the supply chain. Um, uh, or, you know, what would, so in that sense, it's, it's, it's awkward, but I also see the reason, um, why they went forward, uh, without notice and comment, which they overtly say, this is why it's actually not technically an emerging and foundational technology control, even though it's all about emerging and foundational technologies, because that part of the statute, the Export Control Reform Act requires public comment and notice, public notice and comment, um, uh, for any rules that are under that new authority. And what they said is that this is urgent. Uh, the issue with China is uh, uh, an emergency. And, and there was probably also a concern uh, about stockpiling. If they identified too loudly what their plans were, then companies would you know, send ahead items that were thought to be controlled. And that's a constant dilemma with, um, with export controls. Um, in, uh, so I, I do think the rule will be quite effective. Uh, given its extraordinary scope uh, in terms of all of the parts of the semiconductor and the advanced node computing and, and supercomputer ecosystem, and that it's extraterritorial in the sense that it applies to foreign-made items that are not subject let, let, to let's stop. Let's, let, let's stop. Yeah. Let's save the effect. Sorry. Um, uh, let's, let's save the effectiveness conversation for a little bit. All right. So before we get into what's actually in these regs, uh, Kevin, can you talk for a little bit about how much work must have gone into writing these? Oh, yeah, this is, uh, I, I really want to compliment and send thanks to the, my former staff at, at BIS. Uh, they, this is an extraordinary amount of work. It's, it's really, although complex, it's, uh, it's really quite thoughtful uh, in the way in which, from an export control regulatory perspective, addresses um, the instructions given to them by uh, the National Security Advisor. And, and to put all this together was, was clearly very hard and opportunity for mistakes whenever you have this many words and this many, you know, complicated structures. And they did a great job. And it clearly shows that notwithstanding a lot of criticism, uh, they're working and have been for quite some time working really, really hard uh, in order to get this, uh, this document um, uh, out. And it's the other thing, it's, it's, it's also quite, although comprehensive, it's really tailored to address the very specific high-performance computing and advanced mode semiconductor concerns addressed. And it's not, it's not a broad decoupling agenda. If, it's, if you're dealing with technology that's mature, that's, that's not advanced, that's been around for a while, that doesn't meet some of these thresholds, and you understand what that scope is, then the rule has no effect. And, and this is clearly uh, intended to not try to affect um, uh, global supply chains of mature node semiconductors and other items that are used for widely available commercial items. Um, so, uh, you know, thanks and kudos to the leadership and the, you know, the staff BIS for, uh, getting out a really thoughtful, but clearly difficult rule. Okay. But Kevin, how do they do all the hard stuff, right? But still have typos of the companies they entity list. <laughs> uh, it, 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 we're all human and, uh, you know, mistakes in any large document will always occur and BIS and any other regulatory agency is uh, always uh, finding those. And to BIS's credit, they acknowledge up front that they're going to need to make changes, that there will be mistakes. So they have a, a session this Thursday for people to write in with comments and questions, and BIS will answer them. 
And then there will inevitably be, uh, you know, tweaks and typo fixes. And when you're moving on something this big it's, and involved, remember, it's not just going through one person's brain. This also has to go around to get interagency clearance. Nothing publishes uh, uh, out of VIS unless at least the departments of commerce, um, uh, defense, uh, state, and energy have also reviewed and cleared and commented as well. And so the draft, the interagency drafting process can sometimes lead to inconsistent outcomes as part of the clearance process. Okay, so we're blaming Microsoft Word and track changes for... Well, no, anything that's good, I will credit the Commerce Department. Anything that's bad, I will blame the State Department. That's That gotcha. was my usual okay. rule when I was in government, so... Fair enough. Friendly um, all right, Kevin, what's in the reds? So I'll just go through at the top level, the main topic. So there's a creation of new... And these are all, by the way, unilateral controls, and we're going to talk about unilaterals and multilateralism later. So these are things that, uh, notwithstanding the normal structure of export controls being done by allies together at the same time with the same lists, these are, are U.S.-only controls, and they're extraterritorial in, in large part in the sense that they apply outside the United States, even to wholly foreign-made items, if they use U.S. tools of technology to make the foreign items. So the first thing is the creation of um, uh, new controls on things previously uncontrolled on high-performance computing integrated circuits, uh, graphic processing units primarily, and the computers and other electronic systems that uh, contain them. Also, any of the software or technology uh, necessary to develop or produce those specific, and, there, and there's there are technical parameters for the type. It's not all GPUs. It's only, you know, the, the, the high end of the GPUs, but through technical parameters, that is, does it have an input-output of, 600 gigabytes per second and a particular pop's characteristic. And so it's, um, you have to go through and determine whether your chip is above or below that technical characteristic. Anyway, so that's the, um, uh, the first type of control. And these are China only controls. This is the other thing that's novel about it in that most controls apply to the whole world, uh, or minus allies or minus Canada. And because it been focused on the inherent nature of the item, these are, uh, are unique in that they all, there's a whole new reason for control, regional stability, China, that was created uh, just to impose control. So this has on China, on exports to China, and this has no impact on exports to France or Germany or any other country so long as it's not ultimately destined uh, to China. Anyway, so that's the first main control. Uh, the second uh, clump of controls are um, uh, items that are um, de destined uh, to China for supercomputer or semiconductor development or production and use uh, in China. And, um, and specifically, what that gets to is, are you sending an item of any sort to a semiconductor fabrication facility uh, in China uh, that fabricates uh, integrated circuits uh, that meet one of three criteria, one for logic, one for DRAM, dynamic random access memory, and another for NAD, flash memory. So, so the thresholds, they said, if you are sending something to a facility uh, uh, that fabricates uh, logic with uh, that's either non-planar um, uh, or has a smallest feature size, a technology node of 16 or 14 nanometers or smaller, um, that export for that use, for the production or development of that kind of logic chip uh, is now controlled. Uh, another is if you are sending items to a semiconductor fabrication facility uh, for use in producing uh, a dynamic random access memory with a um, smallest feature size of 18 nanometer, um, uh, that is uh, now controlled as well. Or if you're exporting something uh, for use in producing or developing uh, NAND 
Now there is a knowledge requirement that if uh, a U.S. It, uh, if you if you the U.S. person know your thing, whatever it is, uh, is going for one of these uses, you have an obligation. But there's also a situation if you don't know uh, what the feature size is or what the technology node is of the thing being produced in China, then you also have obligations to either get a license or find out um, uh, what the actual technology node is and confirm. Uh, if you're sending certain types of items that it's not for one of these, these three types of, of semiconductors. Um, the, uh, there's also a similar semiconductor computer uh, control if uh, you're sending items for the production or development of, of certain types of, of supercomputers. Um, there is a, uh, an expansion of the, uh, of the foreign direct product rule. There are three new foreign direct product rules. This is a concept um, that was originally created in 1959. Uh, then I created two new foreign direct product rules dealing with satellites and military items. The Trump administration created the, sort of the, the grandfather of these uh, for the um, uh, for the Huawei-specific controls in August of 2020. And the Biden team used the foreign direct product rule with respect to a key part of the Russia sanctions. And this creates three new foreign direct product rules. One. Um, uh, for foreign-made items that are used for the production of, of, of these types of supercomputers super uh, that have a technical threshold that I'll read off in a minute, uh, for the advanced GPUs and other advanced compute capability, if you're using foreign-made items uh, to produce them, uh, then uh, they're caught. And then there are a number of entities on the entity list, uh, which um, have been on there already. There are no new entities added to the entity list, but I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, but uh, they are, in, if they're, but they have been determined to be involved in the supercomputing and high-performance computing industry of concern, and and therefore foreign-made items that are produced with U.S. technology and software are now subject to licensing requirements, or will be subject to licensing requirements if destined to one of those um, identified entities. Um, and, and there was another rule, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. There was also, um, uh, uh, a gaggle of, I think 11 specific types of tools, uh, semiconductor production equipment, deposition equipment, I think generally, uh, that historically had uh, not been subject to export controls, but had been identified as being specific to, uh, producing advanced node semiconductors. And those uh, specific items are now subject to export controls um, uh, from the U.S. and and providing uh, uh, support uh, for um, uh, semiconductor fabrication. I think I've already mentioned that. Also, there's a control now on exporting parts and components uh, to China, or frankly, any item uh, from the United States uh, for use in developing uh, in China or producing in China semiconductor production equipment of of, of, of almost any sort uh, that's identified on the regulations. Um, and a separate rule that was published, uh, I'm sorry, and there's a temporary general license that was created with respect to the GPUs and other items that are subject to the new controls, allowing uh, for another six months or so um, uh, uh, continued production and transfer so long as the end use is outside uh, of China. So there was a lot of um, you know, either repair work or warehousing work for GPUs that were going into commercial applications out of China that were caught up by this new rule. And what commerce did is it gave those companies time to uh, figure out a different way of dealing with this because their their customers, their end uses were outside of China. And then this is, I'll finish here. 
there is, there was a rule published in the morning, uh, a few hours before this one, um, expanding uh, the uh, unverified list, which is not the imposition of new controls. It's actually a rule that I added in order to put pressure on China and Russia in order to allow U.S. government officials to do on-site verification and, and inspections of, of, of Chinese or Russian facilities. And if they didn't, if, or if the company couldn't be determined to be a bona fide company, then they were put on this list and it requires um, a lot more certifications uh, in order to export and uh, you can't use license exceptions to ship. What this rule did is it added um, quite a few well-known companies to the unverified list, which again, doesn't impose any new licensing requirements and imposes certification requirements before you can ship. Um, but what it also said, and this is kind of novel, if the, uh, if the U.S. government's concerns regarding the company, such as site visits uh, or on-site on inspections are not satisfied in 60 days, um, uh, that is, if the Chinese government doesn't allow access to these companies, um, then they're going to be moved to the entity list, which does yeah. have licensing obligations, which does impose broad sweeping bans on the export of anything from the United States to those companies. So, you know, that, that's, um, that's the first time I've rattled all these off at one string. I could probably do it better on a second telling. But anyway, that's the essence. A tour, of, a tour de force, Kevin. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so many, trying. so many things to pick on. Let's start with the last thing first. So this yeah. 60 day unverified entity list thing, like, should we do another podcast two months from now? Is there, is there a potential that the impact of this could actually be a lot bigger than, um, you know, what we currently, when we, what we currently saw of the more, you know, narrow tailored, you know, super high end stuff. Um, if you have some of these big names. Um, that are on the unverified entity list end up, you know, graduating to um, uh, yeah. a full entity list status? Uh, it's really up to the Chinese government. <laughs> uh, if they allow access, if they give the information that the Commerce Department is seeking, if, um, if they allow, you know, there are two agents in China that uh, have as part of their job to do inspections and, and site visits, uh, if they allow those two? Two? Well, well, two? Well, two, yeah, I know. Um, there there's were, like 80, uh, there's like 30 firms on there. Uh, yeah, I know, but you know, no other country has any, um, and the commerce department has by far the commerce department is the only export control organization on the planet with its own special agents, its own enforcement agents who are subject matter experts in, uh, export controls. No other country has that. And, uh, former China talk guest, Matt Brazil hung yeah. out in the nineties doing this exact thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, um, but there could, you know, people can travel, uh, and if they're allowed access, uh, it doesn't have to be just the people coming from, Brazil, uh, uh, from uh, Beijing or Shanghai. Um, uh, we'll see, but yeah, I think it's a fascinating question. What's going to happen in the next couple of months with those entities, uh, and whether there will be cooperation and allowing visibility and access and the provision of information because the commerce department has fairly clearly indicated it as a standard for being added to the any list, it's not cooperating with requests under the unverified list that's that's in a rule so there's no more speculation um the decision to do nationwide as opposed to company specific regulations on yeah. these topics thoughts on that well so export controls have have three legs of a stool you've got lists of items that are controlled for a whole of a country uh, you've got uh, regulations on specific end users, just like the one we were talking about on the unverified list and the entity list, which is tailored regardless of the item, whether it's listed or not, 
and you have concerns about the end user. And then you have controls on end uses. Even if the end user isn't identified and the specific item isn't identified, there's a kind of end use uh, that uh, should be regulated. And so it, um, uh, when one doesn't work, you use the other. When, a, when, a, when an item is so widely available commercially uh, that it can't practically be controlled, uh, then and you're concerned about how it might be used, then you add entities to the any of us. Or as this rule does, it basically takes a page out of the Enhanced Proliferation Control Initiative book that created end-use controls, or what are called catch-all controls, um, for even for unlisted, uncontrolled items to unlisted entities, if they are uh, going to be for the development or production of missiles or chemical, biological weapons or nuclear weapons. This now says, if you are in, uh, if you have knowledge as a U.S. person that you are providing support to the creation or development or the production or development of one of these advanced node um, uh, semiconductors or a supercomputer, that act, even if all the underlying technology is completely uncontrolled and nobody's on a list, um, is now subject to licensing requirements. And that's, that's so to answer your question about countrywide scope, it really just depends. Um, with respect to China as a country, uh, it's clear that, uh, you know, the policy objectives pertain to a countrywide uh, state policy of using commercial items to help modernize its military. This is the civil military fusion policy. So in that sense, it has to be China-wide. But to the extent that there are more detailed uh, and, and specific controls that can be imposed on particular activities uh, or particular end users, uh, then that will be the approach. Let's talk about this U.S. persons thing, Kevin. So what am I, as a U.S. person, not allowed to do now that I was Thursday of yeah. last week? Uh, yeah, so there, it's, well, uh, the effective date is October 12th. Um, okay, but, I got two more days. But you got a couple more days uh, for things that are uncontrolled. So uh, there, uh, the, the, ex the prohibitions on the export of, of particular items was effective immediately on Friday and, uh, you know, equipment and spare parts. But um, effective in, uh, on October 12th and, and 744.23 uh, uh, is, um, is a requirement uh, that U.S. persons, whether a company or an individual, or basically anybody acting on their behalf, uh, if they are um, providing support, uh, or in terms of the um, uh, 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 shipment or transmission of items that are foreign-made, um, or the facilitation of the shipment or transfer or transmission of items that are foreign-made, or the servicing of, of foreign-made items. Uh, at a facility uh, that produces advanced node NAND, advanced node logic, advanced node memory, um, then those acts, those acts by U.S. persons are now controlled events, whether it's an individual citizen working abroad for a foreign company or whether it's a U.S. company and it's foreign agents working overseas, um, uh, that is now or will be on October 12th a, a controlled event requiring a license for the U.S. government to do that. I mean, for the U.S. person to do that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So is there, does this make it impossible for a U.S. firm to make a little like 
hive of non-Americans um, to sell this sort of stuff? H how does it, like, to what extent is this new or novel or an escalation or yeah, uh, another so creative way of getting about this? No, it's, it's, it is, it's really quite creative uh, and it is quite novel because, again, it's a concept uh, that for um, uh, dual-use purposes had only been limited historically to controlling activities for uh, weapons of mass destruction applications. The, the, the State Department regulations, the ICAR, have always regulated the activities of U.S. persons. Those are called defense services if they are from for the production, development, or use, et cetera, of a defense article, something that is a military item that's identified on the U.S. munitions list. Uh, and this is basically taking that same uh, approach of regulating acts, even if the underlying items are not controlled, the underlying technology is not controlled, or in this case, it's explicitly foreign origin technology. If a U.S. person is providing such support, that's a controlled event. So if, and the word facilitate, that's used in the regulations comes from the um, uh, the OFAC regulations, the sanctions regulations that have as a prohibition involving Iran and other locations of uh, facilitation of certain acts, making in any way easier. So to go to your question, if a U.S. company would somehow make arrangements to uh, set up people from outside the U.S. Uh, involving foreign technology uh, to uh, do this, then that would be prohibited, even though the people and the activities and the technology are wholly foreign. It's the act of the of of the U.S. company and or the U.S. individual citizen in facilitating the transmission of or the or the uh, or the um, um, uh, um, or the shipment of these items for one of these uh, advanced node uh, or supercomputer applications. That would be prohibited. Um, now it doesn't prohibit. It has no impact on non-U.S. persons uh, from you know, companies that are outside the U.S. Um, that don't have that don't make their stuff with U.S. technology and have foreign person employees. So, uh, so there you know for the competitors of the U.S. companies outside the U.S. that have been able to either design out U.S. technology or U.S. citizens uh, or U.S. content, this has no effect on any of them. But if you're a U.S. company. It prohibits you from facilitating the transfer even of foreign-made items for one of these advanced node applications. Gotcha. So the theory, presumably, is that those firms with these technologies do not exist, and that this is not something that can be readily substituted. That Chinese firms can substitute out U.S. technology for. Um, Kevin well, Bradley, how effective do you think yeah. this? Uh, or sorry, no. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's, that, that remains yeah. to be seen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So on how effective, uh, I think it's, you know, in the short and medium term, it's really quite effective because uh, uh, U.S. tools, U.S. software, U.S. equipment is quite commonly and widely used throughout uh, the world in producing the types of uh, semiconductors and tools and other items uh, that are used here, if not directly, then certainly indirectly, which this rule uh, captures. Um, but... Um, uh, uh, but uh, but the solution for you'll say you're a non-U.S. company that didn't want to have U.S. law apply, uh, then for depending upon your product, and it's going to be harder for some items. It'll take many years for other items that can be done overnight. Then you just don't use U.S. tools, U.S. software, U.S. people, U.S. equipment, and you can make outside the United States an item that's not subject to any of these controls. Um, and uh, uh, whether that can be done overnight or whether that will take four, five, ten years. You have to go through the technology ecosystem. Then some things are very hard to design out and other things can be swapped out immediately. And there are foreign competitors for most of the companies that are affected. 
uh, uh, that unless there are multilateral controls or plurilateral controls that their governments agree to, uh, will be able to engage in all of exactly the same acts described in this rule without the need for any authorization from the U.S. government or their host country government. So I guess the theory of the case is that, you know, tooling is an incredibly tight market. And um, by doing this sort of work, you'll be cutting yourself off from the rest of the global technological ecosystem. And the trade-off is just not worth it if you're not going to be able to sell, um, you know, the, the, the sort of investment that it will take, um, you know, for, uh, for a firm in Japan or um, the Netherlands to um, be able to capture this Chinese uh, market share would just not be worth the squeeze. Well, sort of, uh, you know, I, uh, again, I'm not the expert at, uh, you know, the Japanese or the Dutch companies, but I have a general sense, uh, uh, that in large part, many of the types of tools that they're able to make, uh, they can do so without using any U S software technology or equipment to make their tool. And thus it's not subject to these rules. And I think that's recognized a little bit by the rule as well, uh, in that it, uh, says that the, the government is going to work to try to make these controls multilateral. And, and, and obviously Japan and the Netherlands are sort of number one and two on the list with respect to, um, competing companies that make production equipment. And, uh, that if the, the rule says several times that if they're able to, if the U S government, yeah, I love, I love, I love that line. It's like, Hey, like if we do a multilateral thing, like, don't worry, we'll slot it in here. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll not make it multilateral. Uh, and right now in Vienna, there's an experts group taking place where the U.S. and the other allies in the Vassenaar arrangement are um, uh, discussing, no doubt, a lot of these same controls and many others about whether they should be agreed to and accepted. Now, it requires all 43 countries to agree. Uh, and if they do, then they would become part of what Vassenaar announces in December uh, for a multilateral control. And then each of the members would implement that in their own regulations the following year. Um, but if they don't agree, if one country blocks it, like to pick a random example, Russia, um, then, um, then the controls can't go into effect as a multilateral control. And it's up to the, uh, allies to use their very, very limited authority for unilateral controls, uh, to, um, agree to impose the same controls that the U S has. So yeah. I think U S has done, it's just moving first. It's applying a really broad scope on these U S person controls and the foreign direct product rules to apply the rules extraterritorially, And then at the same time. Uh, working to try to get uh, the same controls agreed to by uh, a small number of close allies. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it's a real technological and commercial question, right? That the U.S. government is weighing on how easy is this stuff to do, how much is it going to cost, and you know what is the what is the potential is the is the potential opportunity large enough for another firm to try to make a stab at at replacing uh you know filling in some of these holes that have now been created in the sort of 14 nanometer and below future that China is trying to create for itself. Yeah. Um I'm curious Kevin like your sense of the US government's analytical capacity to answer these sorts of questions? Um well, as evidenced by the rule, a lot more thought was put into the background and the technology and the supply chains than I think people gave them credit for. Uh, now, there are, we're finding in the last couple of days of working with companies, a lot of unintended consequences on the supply chain for outside of China uh, that I, I think commerce is going to try to fix because its goal wasn't to harm mature node uh, uh, production for use in the United States. And then there's a 
uh, another provision in there that says if it's a, one of the multilateral multinational corporations that producing in China, uh, that the government wasn't intending um, to materially affect or harm their ability to produce certainly mature node semiconductors at at those multinationals, um, and and that kind of issue will have to be worked through. Um, but your 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 main point, I think, is um, uh, goes to a larger point is that the export control system was built to accomplish other objectives. And if you want to talk about electronic warfare systems or satellites or missile components or, you know, military items or chemical or biological weapons, um, you know, all the sort of traditional things, you've got the absolute world's leading experts, you know, spread throughout the U.S. government sure. at commerce, at defense, the labs, the services, uh, uh, Department of Energy, et cetera. And, and um, we're dealing with a lot of, by definition, really novel, extraordinarily complex, almost exclusively civil, uh, uh, high-tech, uh, advanced node semiconductors, supercomputers, AI applications are outside that traditional. And there are absolutely some stone-cold experts in the government, but I've been advocating for a long time and commerce has been advertising and recently has gotten a huge budget increase to hire. Uh, subject matter experts in these novel, non-traditional uh, areas for export control. And and so, although it's not as good as it could be, it clearly, with um, a lot of outreach to the intelligence community and the labs, et cetera, it looks like they were able to get enough information to put together a pretty good rule. Let's let's come back to unilateral versus multilateral. Um, yeah. what, are, what do you think is the going to be the allied response, whether chips for um, how does this, how does this play out, uh, around the world? Yeah. So first as a general principle, so I've been doing this 30 plus years now that is export controls, uh, and started doing it as a young attorney, even before the Vossenar was created. And, and so I've, I've seen, and the people I work for have been doing it for 30 years prior to that. So I've, you know, I've got a pretty long, uh, history in my head about the ebbs and flows of export control policy debates. Um, and there, there's one constant. Uh, that's reflected in the Export Control Act quite overtly in the uh, upfront statement of policy, is that multilateral controls tend to be more effective and unilateral controls tend to not be. Now, I'm not saying that unilateral controls are always bad or always wrong or always ineffective. Sometimes unilateral controls are critical, even if less effective, to project uh, American disapproval with a certain behavior. Uh, that's why human rights controls historically have been uh, U.S.-only uh, unilateral controls. Uh, but history has shown for things that have a commercial aspect to them uh, that over, given enough time, given enough time, uh, if you create a structure where there's an incentive uh, in the global economy to design out U.S. content, uh, uh, to design out U.S. software, to design out U.S. persons, and for foreign companies using their own ingenuity to fill a gap that can't be filled by U.S. companies, either through regulatory prohibitions or the complexity of an export control system, over time, non-U.S. companies will ultimately fill that gap. The money will go there. And, and so, so that's why I've always been an advocate. I, I see these things not over you know, months or years. I see them over decades, these controls and blocking and structures. And, and that's why I'm a, a huge advocate uh, for multilateral controls and, in particular, uh, an advocate for a whole new regime to of uh, a smaller group of close allies, not to replace the four existing regimes, but to be in addition to the four regimes, uh, to regulate for non-traditional national security reasons the types of items that are in this rule. 
And so in the short term, absolutely, I don't, whether it's going to be, uh, you know, a couple of months, a couple of years, it really depends upon the product about how effective it will be. Um, this will absolutely be effective and have the desired effect of the U.S. government, I believe. Um, but over a much longer period of time, eventually, uh, non-U.S. companies, if they're not subject to the same controls in the producer nations, uh, will fill the gap. And so to go to your question about whether the allies will come on board with um, uh, plurilateral controls in the short term, and plurilateral just means a smaller group of countries exercising their unilateral authorities together outside the regime process uh, in order to regulate their companies in roughly the same way. I think it's really going to be a function of how persuasively and, and how much evidence uh, the U.S. government presents at very senior levels uh, to the allied governments about the a non-classical threat that is China with respect to the need to regulate inherently commercial items. Um, and because they're obviously under a lot of pressure from their companies um, not to impose controls on um, on commercial items. And other countries, frankly, are more exposed than the U.S. is with respect to their dependency on sales to China uh, for their economic livelihood. So, um, but I do think that, and this is, I laid out an article that I published earlier in the year on this. If there's an appeal to core common principles of techno-democracies, um, the freedom of speech and, and the advancement of democracy and protection of human rights um, and, and not allowing enabling technologies that could be uh, developed uh, contrary to those objectives. If they, if they appeal to common themes and common virtues uh, of, of the techno-democracies, I'm, I'm confident that the U.S. government can be successful. And if they provide the evidence like they did at the beginning of the preamble about how all of these things are not themselves directly used in military items, because again, those would already be controlled and prohibited and embargoed, um, but are, 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 are force, force multipliers to the development of the things that can be quite sensitive. I do believe that a small group of allies eventually will come on board, notwithstanding uh, what is no doubt intense lobbying by their companies and in their countries. That's a very long answer to your question. Yeah, I hope that's right. So. I'm I'm curious, Kevin, though, when you think about the sort of case studies for export controls, um, you know, we started this conversation out talking about how the universe of applications was much more narrow and, you know, the size of a satellite industry versus, um, you know, potentially doing all of this R&D to cut yourself off from a global semiconductor supply chain is a very different trade-off potentially. So I'm curious if the sort of unilateral versus multilateral trade-off is different when you're playing in this global, uh, on these global emerging technologies, which already are trillion dollar industries, as opposed to the more niche sort of missile design or engine turbines or yeah. um, uh, satellites or what have you. So it is absolutely true, and uh, I've seen it my whole career. And one of the virtues of working both with industry and government, I get to see the government's concerns, and on the industry side, I get to see the industry concerns. Um, that in these high tech industries that have very high percentages of their income devoted to R and D, sometimes you know twenty, thirty, forty percent, depending upon the company. Whereas in the military space, it's you know one, two, and three percent. Um, where that um, you can only get that massive amount of income for R&D and very quickly evolving high-tech spaces if you have lots and lots of international sales. There just frankly isn't you know, enough in the United States to be able to fund. And, and those international sales are then critical to fund the R&D 
to uh, out innovate your foreign competition. And I think yeah. the, the CHIPS Act goes a long way toward uh, advancing the ability of companies to work on that. But that's not nearly as much as there is in international sales in many of these industries, and the biggest percentage of which, or the well, uh, not biggest, but sometimes a significant percentage of which comes from uh, sales to the very large market that is China historically. And those sales have, um, you know, largely funded uh, uh, um, the, the R&D necessary for each of these high-tech uh, companies uh, to uh, out-innovate their foreign competition and be world leaders. But um, what the government has decided in this case is not to try to affect, if once this is understood and applied uh, correctly, is not to try to affect that which is for the trailing edge. Um, and, and, and this rule is, although comprehensive and big, is really, really focused at the high-end chip, uh, whether it's, um, now different people could say whether it's high or mature, but I mean, the, the, the intent is for uh, advanced node semiconductors of different types and, and supercomputers and advanced AI applications or the things for AI applications is what's caught. And they deliberately are going out of the way not to affect uh, design, develop, production, or use of things that are at the trailing edge or mature node semiconductors, where frankly, that's where a lot of money still is for all the consumer applications like cell yeah. phones and posters and other things like that. So um, it's, it's, it, I, I think the government is really trying to draw a very difficult line, but nonetheless draw a line so as not to have an impact on, on the global supply chain uh, for mature node semiconductors for which a lot of money is generated to invest in R&D. But given the broader national security objectives that Jake Sullivan uh, articulated quite clearly, uh, um, uh, to draw a line at, uh, at these ad advanced node capabilities and just cut those off and all the inputs for them. Um, so I don't know if you, if you call that a trade-off or, you know, making a decision down the middle, however you want to refer to it. I think that's what the, the objective is. Um, talking about, um, effectiveness, it seems pretty impossible for a U.S. firm to sell SME into China nowadays, but. I mean, chips are chips, right? Is like the golden triangle now going to be this like underground highway to smuggle in tens of thousands of, um, you know, NVIDIA GPUs? Like, is this, a, is this, is controlling the import of commercially available chips that are sold in the hundreds of thousands even something that is possible? You're, you're, what you're getting to is not the policy, but the enforcement side of it. And yeah. no doubt, no doubt, um, trying to enforce uh, violations involving foreign-made commercial items that are made outside the United States that aren't subject to any other country's laws that are going into exclusively commercial items that are extraordinarily hard to identify, that are subcomponents of subcomponents of subcomponents going into other things, um, is uh, uh, really, really, really difficult. You know, the traditional model of regulating, you know, military aircraft parts leaving the United States and you can check everything at the border uh, obviously, in comparison, is far easier to enforce. So I am not denying uh, the difficulty, but just because something is hard to enforce doesn't mean you, um, you know, you don't do it. Uh, people speed that, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't have speed limits. Uh, um, and uh, uh, so where the solution is, is in cooperation with allies, uh, because the, just like the sanctions against Russia and the comprehensive export controls uh, against Russia after the result, after the invasion of Ukraine demonstrated, uh, when allies work together and share resources on enforcement and tips and leads and intel, um, uh, enforcement of these controls um, can be far, far more effective because it's not just the U.S. acting alone. 
uh, but the U.S. and its allies to accomplish a common goal. So goal number one uh, for the enforcement side is get other allies on board as quickly as possible. Uh, goal number two, which I think the Commerce Department is already going down, is have you know pretty aggressive, overt uh, leadership about the seriousness of export controls and getting the word out that if you violate these rules, we will uh, punish you quite severely. Uh, rule number three is you keep funding and you keep training a large cadre of enforcement agents um, uh, in order to do investigations, which include as a result of ECRA Overseas Investigation Authority, uh, to track down uh, violations. Four, uh, frankly, uh, the on the front line are what uh, companies and their compliance programs, and this is what I do for a living, what compliance uh, attorneys do in helping companies set up systems uh, in order to be able to identify and spot potential violations and make it so that shipments don't occur or transfers don't occur uh, that require license uh, without permission. And and so it really requires uh, companies that are doing it for whatever reason, whether patriotism or whether that's their corporate policy for ethics or just simply following the law simply uh, or fear of prosecution. Um, you need massive engagement of industry and resources of compliance officials and staff and licensing officials um, and systems and procedures in order to be able to identify the controlled items and activities and stop them. So, yeah, it's hard, uh, but you don't let the difficulty in enforcement stop proceeding with something that warrants being done for broader national security reasons. It just means that you spend more time on the enforcement of it. Um, Kevin, do you think there's any sort of dynamic where maybe the Japanese or Koreans we're a little scared of doing this on their own, but now that America has taken the first step, it gives them more cover. Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, um, I think that's a reasonable thought. I, I, the reason I stuttered a little bit is because I think every country is slightly different uh, in their attitude towards achieving and working toward a new non-traditional approach toward export control. Some are more forward-leaning than others. Others are more exposed to the uh, Chinese economy in terms of sales. And having public discussions of it um, is more awkward than it is for the United States, where it's very public. Um, and, um, you know, there's this tension between those that say you shouldn't act uh, until the allies on board, uh, because if you go first and you go alone, then the allied companies are going to say, whoa, they've just opened up a gap in a market for us to fill behind and we're going to start selling all the things now that the U.S. companies can't sell. And there's absolutely uh, truth to that. I, I see firsthand in my practice of non-U.S. companies legally doing things that um, U.S. companies uh, are not allowed to do. Um, but I, I do see from a broader diplomatic uh, perspective uh, the need to signal and show how serious the U.S. government is, which this rule was going to do in spades, uh, in order to get a really serious discussion going um, with the allies about the need for them to change their rules to achieve common uh, national security objectives. Um, so we'll see. I mean, this is, we're all in uncharted territory here on this topic, and I don't know what the right answer is, but um, uh, I do know, I do know, I do know that over the long term, if the effort to get the allies on board fails, that over some number of years for each one of the items that are at issue here, you will see what happened in many other industries is that the incentive for non-U.S. companies to produce and develop and sell and do the R&D outside the United States uh, will just accelerate, and over a very long period of time, uh, they will achieve advantages that they wouldn't have had um, uh, but for the unilateral controls. So, but I guess the bet then is that America will be running faster 
mm. and right. it'll it's, you'll, it's, you'll you'll have a gap that will be expanding, not contracting over the long run. Absolutely fair point. And so, so the other big difference with what's happened in the last couple of years that was the case not that long ago when I was in the system is that uh, there's the keep away strategy, which is the export control strategy, and then there's the run faster strategy. And um, um, the uh, the run faster strategy, which which is the industrial policy or the Chips Act or the subsidization yeah. of, of 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 STEM education or the subsidization of production domestically to counter you know Chinese production and and the Jake Sullivan speech laid out really quite clearly that we can't just do a keep away strategy. It absolutely requires the uh, the run faster strategy as well. And for this broader national security plan of of Jake Sullivan to succeed. You absolutely need both. And and in my day, the concept of industrial policy was really a non-starter of brilliant big chunks of both parties. Uh, but that has completely shifted in recent years by both parties that everybody's on board with the run faster side of industrial policy, which I think is excellent and critical uh, for um, uh, advancing and maintaining that leadership that Jake Sullivan calls out and and broader national security objectives. You can't just export control way you're in yourself into a healthy economy, um, given uh, the fungibility of technology and the capability of smart people outside the United States. Kevin, let's talk about narratives for a second. Um, yeah. We had a, we just talked for an hour about how this is actually kind of narrow. Um, but I saw a quote in the Financial Times saying that these regulations were going to bring China back to the Stone Age. What does this action kind of coming bundled up in a giant 100 plus page bow a week before uh, the party Congress um, mean uh, from a Beijing response perspective? And maybe, you know, what this for the future of, um, you know, U.S.-China tech relations more generally? Well, I wouldn't use the word narrow uh, because this is extraordinarily broad uh, in its reach, uh, particularly with the extraterritorial aspects, the, you know, the parts that apply outside the U.S. and the extraordinarily novel reach of U.S. person controls over otherwise uncontrolled sure. items if those sure. activities but, were... But they could have tried to throw a neutron bomb into the Chinese semiconductor industry whole hog. And that's not yeah. what we're seeing here. Uh, so, so tailored rather than narrow and yes. focused yeah, yeah, on yeah. influence rather than mature. That's sort of how yeah. I would draw the line. Um, and, and there's going to be, you know, a lot of disruption for several months as people try to figure out what's permitted and what's not. I mean, that's actually sort of what I do for a living is, is, is sort out what is permitted under this rule and what is prohibited and what the implications are and what the unintended consequences are. So there's going to be um, uh, an impact in the short term as, as companies pull back their activity just to figure out if what they're doing or planning on doing is or isn't permitted or does or doesn't require uh, a license. And so there, I think there will be some immediate impacts. Um, but in terms of how the Chinese government responds, I'll have to defer to other experts on that who are, you know, and, or you or others on, on Chinese psychology and, and use of blocking statutes, et cetera, or how they might, might re respond to this or how the economy might respond to this within China. So I'll, I'll prefer yeah. to others from that. Yeah, I mean, my my hot take is that I don't think this is going to be taken, taken lying down. Um, there have just been so many different uh, small cuts um, from a microelectronics perspective over the past five years. And I found it really remarkable that the Chinese government um, you know, the biggest, you know, 
response I guess you've gotten was, uh, you know, a after the Huawei CFO was uh, arrested, you had the two Canadians who were um, who were deprived their liberty for a number of years. Um, but really nothing directly impacting uh, American business has fallen, you know, as a one to one thing out of, um, you know, in, in a sort of dramatic over public way out of the uh, controls that the U.S. has put on the Chinese semiconductor industry ever since, um, you know, the FDPR with 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 Huawei. So it's unclear. I think it's 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 kind of an impossible question to know exactly where it's going to fall. And I've talked on past episodes about how a lot of the actions that the Chinese government could take to cause pain for U.S. firms in semiconductors and electronics more broadly tend to be pretty self um, uh, harming in the medium term, where a lot of the assembly or production or rare minerals or whatever would end up just going to other countries in the world over a, you know, one to two year time horizon. But um, this doesn't necessarily mean that other American firms are safe. And I would I would put my bet on an asymmetric reaction and firms that in terms of, you know, ruining some other uh, some other company's day that maybe isn't necessarily a, um, uh, you know, a, a semiconductor manufacturing equipment company or what have you. But uh, yeah. we'll have to see. Um, human rights, Kevin, this was kind of missing here, wasn't it? Well, yes and no. So there is a reference at the beginning that part of the motive for these uh, controls is that uh, the advanced node items can be used for human rights violations. Oh, oh, and maybe I suspect it's going to be in other rules later, uh, but um, uh, the types of items that are uh, specific uh, to human rights abuses. I, I, I think, and I was expecting or assuming that at some point that there would be new controls there. And remember, all these are going to be, by definition, unilateral, since there is no multilateral export control arrangement that has human rights as part of its mandate. Uh, and one of the things that I've called for in this new regime is that uh, uh, using controls over what are inherently commercial items uh, that are for human rights abuses be regulated not just by the U.S. but by, by close allies with similar values, um, and and that isn't directly addressed uh, in this. And in the uh, another sort of interesting aspect of the unverified list and entity list standards for what could cause a entity to be added to the entity list, they didn't come out and overtly say um, uh, engaging in violations for uh, uh, of human rights is a is a per se rule for being added to the list. Now, they can still do that. There's the legal authority to do it, but I, I, I thought it might be called out more. That could be coming later in other rules. Uh, it just wasn't uh, highlighted in either of the two rules that published Friday. Kevin, we close every China Talk episode with a song. <laughs> Export control song, supercomputer song. Um, they come to mind? No, I, I have no songs. And for those who know me, and there are six export control jokes. Um, and if we had a few more hours, I'd work in each of the six. There are only six, uh, but I, I'm unaware of any actual musical arrangements associated with export controls. Kevin Wolf, thanks so much for being a part of Chinatown. Okay, cheers. Tu corazón es de piedra y tus lágrimas de cristal. 
Pasamos de decirte extraño a ser dos extraños. Se derrumba en minutos lo que construyendo años. Y a veces estaba bien, pero me hacía daño. Tú no eres real, baby, tú eres un engaño. Hoy borro tu Tiene las tetas real, pero el corazón facturo Esa vida de mentira, yo era lo único puro Quédate con la guagua, con la gana y con el pudor A ti yo te di, pero también le di dili A la foto en París Y que me cague en la madre, que me vuelva a parir Por eso bloqueé tu perfil Yo no quería volver, solo escucharte en mí Baby, si mi tú no luce, aunque prenda la luz, la culpa la tienes tú, por más que me acuse, tantas excusas que puedes llenar de autobuses, vas a ver el diablo cuando conmigo te cruce, tu memoria, tu contacto y todos tus videos. Llego el final de esta historia, no te arrepientas porque ya no te creo. Hoy borro tu memoria, tu contacto y todo tu video. Llego al final de esta historia, no te arrepiento porque ya no te creo. Y a ti yo te leo aunque tú seas pisi. Cuando no tenía ni carro te buscaba en bici. Pero tú me fallaste y la pusiste y sí. Quédate con toda la Louis Vuitton y con la GC. Si quieres busca otro cabrón que te lleve de compra. No te guardas mi corazón pa' que otra vez lo rompa. Lo menos que tú quieres tenerme en tu contra. Tú no sirves y lo que no sirve se bota. Ahora te toca llorar y llorar cuando me Tu contacto y todos tus videos Llego al final de esta historia No te arrepientas porque ya no te creo Así que hoy borro tu memoria 